about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This is the word of the Lord. Folks, good evening. Uh, A special welcome to anybody who's joining us for the baptism. I hope you'll stay on for the sermon and the prayers and, and time together. Uh, really great to have you with us. Uh, my name's Andrew Errington. I'm the senior minister here. That baptism is also a great reminder uh, that if you do have children, do it early because uh, you might get, they might sleep through it because once they're three or four, it's more like an exorcism sometimes. So um, that was just beautiful. Sorry, it's slightly off-taste joke, but so pleased for you guys, Mark and Tiani, and welcome Serena. Uh, Let's pray again as we come to God's Word. Father, we give you thanks so much that we get to listen in to this incredible prayer of Jesus. Lord, it would have been well within his rights, uh, well within what was right in a way for him to keep it to himself and that we don't get to hear it because it it was such an incredible moment. And all the disciples deserted him shortly after, and we would have done the same. And yet, Lord, you graciously permit us to listen, to listen in and to hear what he prayed to you. Would you teach us and speak to us from these words this evening? For his glory. Amen. A uh, classic plot line of many stories and movies is a story of disillusionment. Uh, sorry, before I get on with this, I should just say, I'm feeling bad about that comment about three or four-year-old baptisms, but they're still a really wonderful thing and, and uh, a really terrific, beautiful thing. Just, that was really great, seeing the baby sleep through that. That was lovely. Anyway, back to the sermon. Introduction, what lies behind the screen? A classic plot line of stories and movies is a story of disillusionment. A protagonist gets to see inside or, or behind the scenes of something or someone they have previously idolised or admired. And what they see is a shock, a disappointment, somehow profoundly less than what they expected. Now, the classic example is, of course, The Wizard of Oz. Um, This incredibly impressive wizard is discovered as nothing more than a clever con artist. I'm really sorry if I spoilt that for you. I figured that was a safe spoiler. Not all stories of disillusionment, though, are stories of outright hypocrisy. 
Uh, Sometimes they're just stories when the reality turns out to be just less than, shabbier than what it seemed to be. Some of us have gone gone through our, our own miniature version of this over the past months as we've presented ourselves on screen. Uh, Some of our tech volunteers who have come in to help us run the live stream have occasionally, I think, gone away a little heartbroken at the gap between the pristine, well, sometimes it is, online presentation and what's going on back here. One week, Mike wore tracksuit pants that didn't reach his ankles. The story of disillusionment is a great storyline, though, actually, because we both know it is possible for this to happen. And we know that sometimes it really, it really matters. Uh, we know it's possible, it, it's easy even for this to happen because it's so easy for a gap to open up between public presentation and behind-the-scenes reality. And yet we also know that this is dangerous ground. It is a fearful thought, isn't it, that the people and things we put our confidence in might turn out to be a disappointment somehow. That's a... That's a troubling thought. Well, now let me ask a more troubling question. Could something like this happen with God? If in the end we got to see behind the screen, if we got to see backstage, would we be disillusioned? Would it be like getting to the Emerald City and discovering that it was a clever trick? Or would it just be somehow disappointing, something less than what it was hyped up to be? I know that's a bit of a weird question to ask, but I want to ask it this evening as we return to John's Gospel and begin to read there Jesus' final prayer before he faced the cross. Because I think what happens in this prayer is that we do get to see behind the screen. We get to see backstage Jesus turns from talking to his, and teaching his disciples, and now he speaks to his father. And as he does this, we get a glimpse of what the work of salvation meant for God. We get to see almost inside God. And what we see is stunning. Stunning. It is anything but a disappointment. For we get to see that Jesus' work of salvation was not just something God did. It wasn't just a a pretty fine act he put on. But it was and is the deepest and fullest truth of God's being. We get to see that God is utterly and completely, perfectly, fully and consistently. He is the God we meet in Jesus Christ. It is from His fullness, that grace comes to us. We see this truth from a number of different angles in this passage. Uh, I want us to notice three aspects of what Jesus says here. First, what he says about the work of God as Father and Son. Second, what he says about eternal life. And third, what he says about glory. That's the overall outline. And each time, what we see is this one profound truth, that what we see is what we get. First then, notice what Jesus says about God as Father and Son. What we see here is that all of God, 
was involved in the work of Jesus. Salvation was the work of Father and Son together by the power of the Holy Spirit. In this prayer, you see, Jesus, he asks the Father to take now the work that he has done and to make it into the act of glorious salvation it is intended to be. He begins like this in verse 1. After Jesus said this, John tells us, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Down in verse 4, he says the same thing in different words. I have brought you glory on earth, Jesus says, by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. What is Jesus doing here exactly? Well, he's asking for God the Father to take his work, the work that he has done, his whole life, his teaching, his efforts, all his works, to take that and to give it his stamp of approval, to lift it up into glory. He is placing himself and his whole life as an offering in the hands of God and asking God to glorify all of it through what is coming. And what this shows us is that Christ's work, the work, his work to bring salvation, to give eternal life to his people, it wasn't just work, the work of part of God. It wasn't like the Son of God took one for the team, taking on this unpleasant job so that he could keep the Father out of it. No, the work of salvation was the work of all of God, Father and Son, together by the power of the Holy Spirit. This was a work that all of God was committed to and invested in. The Son asks the Father to confirm and vindicate His work, which we know from all that Jesus has said before this point happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is it important to point this out? Right? Talk of God as Trinity, as Father, Son, and Spirit. That's how Christians talk about God as, as a triunity or Trinity. But that is all so complex, isn't it? That, that whole idea. Do we really need to get into all of this? But it matters because it is the easiest thing in the world to start to go off track here. What happens is that we start to think that there is... There is some God or some part of God that is above what Jesus does, most of all above the cross. And when we do this, we treat Jesus as not quite the highest God. And we treat his work as somehow just a rung down from the highest God, somehow removed from the highest God, and then the highest God becomes distant unknown and unreachable. Christians have been making that mistake here and there for a very long time. It's one of the oldest heresies of the Christian church. But it is not the God we see here. No, here we see Jesus ask his Father now to come and make his work his own, to take his work and to glorify it to own it. The Son asks the Father to make 
his work his own, God's own, to give it his blessing and his stamp of approval. You see, the work of salvation is the work of all of God. Father and Son are here together by the power of the Spirit as Jesus faces the cross. We see the same thing from a different angle or a similar thing from a different angle in what Jesus says about eternal life. Look with me at verse 2. For you granted him, that's Jesus talking about himself, you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There are a number of things we could talk about here, but the thing I want to notice now is that phrase right at the end, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is a big deal, that phrase, right there. Why is that? Why is that a big deal? Well, notice that that sentence would have made perfect sense without that phrase. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, full stop. That would have worked, wouldn't it? But then what would have happened? Jesus would then have been only a means to an end. He would have been simply the instrument by which God brought us to the knowledge of himself, like a tool that someone uses to do a job but then doesn't need anymore. That is not what we hear. That is not what we hear. No, what we hear is that eternal life is the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. And that is huge. Because it means that God will never not be the God of Jesus Christ. The God who came to us and made himself known to us in this man, this man who went to the cross. Eternal life is the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus is, is not just the means by which we know some other God or some other fullness of God. He is the God we come to know. He is the fullness of God. Don't let yourself be drawn into thinking that there is some greater knowledge of God to be had than the knowledge of Jesus Christ, of this one who was sent from the Father. Don't let yourself be tempted to, by those who offer up some other path to some kind of mystical knowledge of God that is above the knowledge of Jesus Christ. No, this is eternal life, that we know the one true God and Jesus Christ. Jesus is not merely a means to an end. He is the end. We will never, ever, in all eternity, move beyond the knowledge of Jesus. I'll say that again because that is an extraordinary thought. We will never, ever, in all eternity, get past, move beyond the knowledge of Jesus. Finally, the same truth appears from a third angle in what Jesus prays about glory. 
Look with me again at verse 5. We read it before, but I'll read it again. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus is facing the cross. This is a prayer prayed right before he's arrested and tried. He knows it's coming. He's already sent Judas out in chapter 13. He's facing the cross. He's facing submitting himself to dreadful, humiliating, agonizing execution, becoming the plaything of the unjust rulers of the world. And he prays for God to glorify him through it. Not around it. Not instead of it. Not despite it. But through it. Make no mistake, Jesus is not only talking about the cross here. He is hoping, I am sure, to be lifted up and vindicated beyond death. He is hoping for God to raise him from the dead and exalt him to the right hand, which he does. But Jesus is also utterly clear that the way to that place of majesty runs through the cross. That will be the way in which God will glorify him by taking him through the cross to glory. Glorify me, says Jesus, facing the cross. Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. What does that mean? It means that the eternal glory of God can include the cross within it. The eternal glory of God is, is of such a kind that it can encompass, can take in without collapsing the cross. It must mean that. Otherwise, Jesus could never have prayed facing the cross for God to glorify him through this thing he was about to go through with the eternal glory. You see, God's glory is not like our glory. God's glory is not mere health and strength or the fragile excellence of beauty and achievement. No, God's glory is God's glory. It is a holy glory that is perfected in humility for it is the glory of his love. The Father's eternal love for the Son and the Son's perfect love of the Father through the Holy Spirit. God's glory is a glory that endlessly, perfectly gives itself to another. And so it is a glory that somehow can take in without being ruined, without being stained and corrupted. It can take in the cross. Dying in agony as he gives himself for the sake of others, showered with curses and ridicule, the Son is in the presence of the Eternal Father, shining with the radiance of all eternity. The cross was an embarrassment to the disciples at first. It was not what should happen to God's Messiah. 
It was not what should happen to the Son of God or to a wise man or to a king. The obvious reaction was to conclude that Jesus was wrong, that he was all a fake. The cross remains an embarrassment today for there's no way to cut it otherwise. It is a weak, ugly, humiliating thing. But not to God. The cross is not an embarrassment to God. No, it is the way of his glory. It unveils the truth of God's name. His true character. God stands with Jesus at the cross. And the father says, this is my son. He's glorious. So what does all this mean for us today? It means, I think, the comfort and the challenge that what we see is what we get. What we see in Jesus really is what we get. That is to say, this really is the truth of God. There is no other God behind the scenes yet to be revealed. There is no different picture we will get when we get to see backstage. No, Jesus comes to us and goes to the cross out of the fullness of God. The glory of God is in this one who was crucified and eternal life is nothing other than knowing him. And that is both a comfort and a challenge. It is a comfort because it means we do not need to fear disillusionment. We will not get to the Emerald City and find out that we have been fools because things are really very different to what they seemed. No, here he is on view. This is him. God is the God of Jesus Christ in all his beautiful, unsettling, holy glory. The writer of Hebrews put it so beautifully when he said, Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, forever. Brothers and sisters, hold on to this truth this comfort, this confidence, now and always. Let it be the rock that holds you firm in every storm, now and at the hour of your death. In Jesus Christ, who died for us, we know God truly as he is and will be forever. Can I also say that if, if you are still hovering around the edges of Christian faith, curious, interested, but not quite committed, do hear this today. Do see here how Jesus prays as he faces the cross. Meditate on it, right? This is, he's facing his death and this is what he prays. What does that show us? do see what it shows us about God, that this is the God in whom Christians believe. This is the God in whose name Serena has just been baptized. This is the one behind the screen. 
the one we see in Jesus Christ who went to the cross to give eternal life to you. He has shown himself. He hasn't held back. Won't you come and worship him? But it is a challenge too, this knowledge. This knowledge that what we see in Jesus is what we get. It's a challenge because it forces us to lay down any hopes we may have that the cross can be avoided. If you and I are hoping that somehow the Christian life will turn out for us to be a life of triumph, of honor, acclaim and success on this world's terms, then here our hopes are dashed. For the way of the glory of God passes through Golgotha. And those who follow on this way must go that way too. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, said Jesus. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Brothers and sisters, as we listen in to this prayer of Jesus today, can I ask you to consider whether you, whether you have really accepted this point? That Jesus and the way of the cross really are the way of the glory of God. And that eternal life is, is nothing other than knowledge of the God who glorified the one who went to the cross. Christians and the church and Christian leaders, we keep forgetting this. We keep falling back into our old ways, our old assumptions, the world's ways of might and celebrity and privilege. But the way of true glory, the way of true greatness, the way of true brilliance and splendor is the way of service. For our God is the one who looked at the cross and prayed that the fullness of God's eternal glory would shine not in spite of it, but through it. This is Christianity. And what we see here is what we get now and for all eternity. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit 
naac.com.au